The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Thank you, Chrissy. Praise team. It's beautiful. We're looking at the Beatitudes for the next two weeks, and the Beatitudes... If you haven't grown up in the church, that's Christianese, and that's from the Latin word for blessedness. And uh, there are eight Beatitudes uh, here, and we're going to look at the first four today, and mainly I'm just going to focus on the first one because I think the others all fall from it. Um, But we're looking more like a treetop view rather than the microscopic view, and uh, If you're paying attention, when Bruce Wiley preaches, he's been taking us through a sermon series of the Beatitudes. He does one a year. And uh, so he's doing Blessed are the Merciful the Sunday after Easter. So we look forward to that, uh, Bruce. Um, Now this word uh, that we get, the Beatitudes, um, it would be easy to say like, happy are, and then, you know, translate uh, the word blessing is that. Um, But I think what D.A. Carson says about this word blessing, he says, to be blessed means fundamentally to be approved, to find approval. And when God, when man blesses God, he's approving God. Um, But when God blesses man, he's approving man. And that's always an act of condescension, he says. So we say the Beatitudes are the applause of heaven or the smile of God. And of course, this is the approval we should be looking for. And in turn, this obviously does make us happy. And so these first four Beatitudes deal with uh, entrance into the kingdom. And um, it's really more vertically uh, oriented. Whereas the second four are more horizontal in our relationships to one another. That we're to be merciful, we're to be pure of heart, we're to be uh, uh, peacemakers, and we may be persecuted. So let's give attention uh, to God's word here. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Stop there. Let me pray again for us. Father, I ask that, Lord, as each of us comes under this word, that, Lord, you would do a work in our hearts and lives. Help us to see, um, Lord, how much we are in need of this text, and pray that, Lord, it would bring a sobriety to us and a humility, and that it would bring praise to Jesus, seeing that we have nothing else to boast in. But we ask in your name. Amen. Well, this text, if you think about it, is very countercultural. Here Jesus begins with, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I just want you to think about that next time you go to a high school graduation or a college graduation, and I want you to put your 
your hearing aid on, so to speak, your hearing antenna, and listen to what you're going to hear. You're going to hear probably a little bit of something like Henry David Thoreau. Follow the beat of your own drum. Stay true to your own compass. And that's the best way to never get lost. Follow your dreams. Follow your passion. Maybe a little Invictus poem by William Ernest Henley. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments, the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Sounds a little different than Jesus, doesn't it? Or maybe even a little Winston Churchill. Never give up. Never, never give up. Well, that's all great and winning wars and achieving goals. But Jesus, talking about entrance to his kingdom, turns all that logic upside down, all of it on its head. He begins, and what he's saying is, blessed are the beggars, and happy are the unhappy. That sounds very countercultural, doesn't it? You see, this is exactly, you know, with Job, if you think about entering into the kingdom, Job, Job's friends, they were saying to Job, you've done something wrong. You need to repent. Something bad has happened to you. It must be you're the problem. And Job is insistent throughout the whole book. I just need an interview with God. I just want to plead by case with God. It even says in chapter 3, oh, that I knew where I might find him. I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know that he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. That's Job. Job 23, little Invictus. I'll show, I want to plead my case with God. And there's a lot of people that, that think like that. I mean, Sigmund Freud said, when I get to heaven, I will find more wrong with God than he with me. Wow. Well, Job wasn't poor in spirit or mourning over his sin or meek. But when God showed up, God does all the interviewing. And God asks all the questions. And he asks tons And it's the longest speech of the Bible. I encourage you to read it if you haven't read it in a while. Job 38 to 42. And when he's done, Job's reply was, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He became poor in spirit and he mourned over his sin. When God shows up, in the Bible and reveals himself all throughout the scriptures. People fall on their faces. They get real low. They are changed by the presence of God. When you think of Joshua, he's getting ready to go into Jericho. We prayed about this in the prayer just a minute ago. But he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, I am the commander of the the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. 
And Joshua did so. He was humbled. We need that. And even as we sung Psalm 51, we sang that whole, basically that whole psalm. And that was David after his sin and after the prophet Nathan had showed up and rebuked him. And David said, I have sinned. And then he confessed his sin as he became convicted of sin. Rosario Butterfield, her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Kiss. Some of you, I know, have read it in uh, the uh, women's, uh, or not just the women's, the blanket on it, the thing that Veronica does at her house, the reading study, book, book club, thank you. They've done the book, sorry. And uh, we're going through it in staff. Uh, we've been reading a chapter a week, and we just finished the chapter where there's a whole chapter about her mother, and it's called something about ghosts. But she had a really hard relationship with her mother. And this was a difficult uh, relationship because her mother was just very hard. And uh, she talks about how her mother uh, mocked her family devotions, mocked her reading God's word, mocked her use of Christian homeschool curriculum. She believed that science had disproved faith and that entitled her to do whatever she wanted to do. Her mom believed strongly in abortion rights and human euthanasia. But lo and behold, her mother was dying of, of lung cancer. And Rosario moved into the hospital room with her, or, the, or whatever, the, where she was in her last days. And, and her mom would refer to her as Sar, for Rosario. And Sar, she said, Sar, I'm dying my way, not yours. You need to respect that. I've read your books. If anything was going to make me a Christian, it would have been them. But I'm not weak like you. And so Christians are weak, aren't they? We have a crutch. It's called a cross. And this hurt her, but she did not give up. And Rosario sang psalms to her mother. And she was singing Psalm 23 to her mom, and, and her mom stopped her after she was singing, Beside tranquil waters, he leads me along. Because he restores me, my soul is made strong. Her mom put her hand up and gestured for me to stop and come close, and she said, I'm dying. I'm becoming weak, not strong. How is my soul being made strong that she had just sung about? And Rosario said, and that is how my world changed in the most powerful gestalt that I had ever experienced. Making my own conversion seem sort of pale and soft around the edges. Mom, your soul bears God's image, and it will last forever, even as your body wastes away, I whisper. My hands are shaking and I can barely get the words out. Her mom says, you really believe this crap? With all my heart, maybe I am becoming weak like you. If I'm going to be soft like you, why don't I understand? She thinks out loud. Rosario says, mom, I think you understand the gospel, but because you don't know this, the shepherd, it seems like nonsense to you. She says, maybe you're right, so tell me about him. Tell me about the shepherd, but keep singing, please. And so she sings the rest of Psalm 23. And she says that um, in the secret council of the Trinity, something changed in the heavens. One more lost sheep was gathered in the protective arms of her Savior. The stars became brighter. The cosmos shifted. My mom opened her eyes with clarity and said, well, that settles it then. I'm now weak. I am weak like you. I do need the shepherd. Now what? Would you like to hear about how to make peace with Jesus? 
Mom says, yes, but first I want to know what I need to do with my sin. And please don't call in a priest. And with that, everything changed in heaven and earth. My mom wanted me to sing the Psalms until I could sing no more, and she wanted Kent and her husband to read the Bible and pray and answer all of her questions. My mother, the former atheist, put her faith in Jesus, repented of her sin, and made peace with God two days before she died. She had to become weak, and she finally became weak. Mike Tyson, former great boxer, he once said in his interview about his opponents, they all had a strategy until they got hit. And that's actually a pretty profound quote, isn't it? They all had a strategy until they got hit. We all had a strategy too. We all had a strategy of avoiding God and doing it ourselves and trying the Invictus poem and being the captain of our, our way until we got hit. We all had a plan. We all had a strategy until they get hit. We get rocked. You know, we watch these commercials. Life comes at you fast. The Allstate commercial, you know, they're jingling. Mayhem comes. It breaks us down. It shows us our need. John Stott, the minister who's now with the Lord, but he was at the All Souls Church in London. He once conducted a poll of his congregation to find out actually what caused the members of his flock to become Christians. Here's what he found out. He found out that a majority listed as the greatest single human factor was a feeling of personal desperation. Being at the end of their resources. They all had a strategy until they got hit. Have you been hit this morning? Because you will. And Jesus says the way to end is to be poor in spirit and to mourn over our sin and to be meek and to hunger and thirst for him. Some of you may have watched some of these. Um, Jerry Seinfeld has these things on uh, Netflix. Comedians uh, in cars getting coffee. And uh, some of those are good. Some of them are bad. And uh, you, you don't know what you're going to get. But I like the, some of them. And there's one with Brian Regan where they have a... And I, he cracks me up, mainly just because of his goofy expressions and mannerisms. But, but they have this funny seg, seg, uh, segment that they're talking about. And they just said... What if you could just say at the, at the end of every, you know, people are going on about their problems and you just, just snap out of it, just snap out of it, you know? And, he, and they keep running through these scenarios, you know, you're, you're a shrink and you, you spend an hour listening to people's problems and at the end you can just say, hey, just snap out of it. And they're, they're laughing hysterically because they know that people just can't snap out of it. And we were so often just want to say to people, hey, just snap out of it, you know? But they can't. Because our problems are bigger. We are chronic controllers. We're chronic gossips. Chronic addicts. We look at things we shouldn't look at. We listen to things we shouldn't listen to. We have all kinds of messes that we fall into. And so one of these other uh, episodes is with Michael Richards. And Michael Richards was Kramer. And you remember Kramer from Seinfeld. Well... In this very episode where Seinfeld and, and Michael Richards are having a good time, at one point, Michael begins to break down. And he talks about how he had this meltdown on stage. You may remember, he was a stand, doing a stand-up comedy routine, and, and a heckler in the audience pushed his buttons, and, and Michael Richards just came undone, and out came this sewage of racial and ugly comments that 
literally tanked his career. And he talks about it, and he said, I busted up. It broke me down. He said it was a selfish response. I should have been working selfishly. He even tried to talk about how he escaped by taking a solitary vacation to Bali. And he went as far away from the comedy club as he could. And he he thanked Jerry for sticking with him. But he said, inside, it still kicks me around. You can clearly see that it still bothers Richards by his angst. And so Jerry says to, to Richards, well, That's up to you, but if I were you, I'd tell myself, I've been carrying this long ago, I'm just going to put it down now. What he's really saying is just snap out of it. But the episode literally ends with Richard saying, yeah, yeah, and as it backs out, you see that Kramer has not recovered because he can't snap out of it, and it's not funny. You see, All the 12-step programs, whether it's Celebrate Recovery or AA, they don't start with just snap out of it, do they? What do they tell you? The very first step of addiction, the very first step is we are powerless over our problems. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And notice how this is not past tense, like I once needed this. No, no, we need it now, right now. Spurgeon said, it is a commonplace observation of the Christian life that we receive as much grace as we think we need. You will go home today receiving as as much grace as as much as you thought you needed. And if you need a little bit of grace, well, that's all you're going to get. But if you see your need is great, then great grace will be yours. You see, one of the prayers in the Valley of Vision, the Puritan prayer book, says the first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness, not my merit, but my misery, not my standing, but my falling. The London Times, about 100 years ago or so, it's a little while back, they asked great writers of this period to, to address this question, what is the problem of the universe? Write about it in the Times. And G.K. Chesterton, an Englishman, great mind of the early 20th century, he was a Christian, and he wrote and he sent in to the London Times. Many of you remember this. He, here it is. The problem with the universe is me. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. Sent it in. Do you believe it? Is that what you'd say? Or would you say the problem is Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump? You see, the great irony in two of the seven churches in Revelation that Jesus addresses is Jesus rebukes the rich church, Laodicea, and he tells them that they're poor. And he tells the poor church, Smyrna, that they are rich. So he says to Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, and they were poor, but you are rich, spiritually rich. And yet to the church in Laodicea, he says, but you say, I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, Thomas Watson said, till we're, and he's a Puritan writer, this is written many centuries ago, he said this, till we are poor in spirit, we are not capable of receiving grace. He was swollen with an opinion of self-excellency and self-sufficiency, is not fit for Christ, he's full already. If the hand be full of apples, it cannot receive gold. The glass is first empty before you pour in wine. God first empties a man of himself before he pours in the precious wine of his grace. 
Till we are poor in spirit, Christ is never precious. Before we see our own wants, we never see Christ's worth. And one of the surprises as I was studying this week, and I, I had like 26 pages of notes, so I'd, this was, I'm giving you like a fourth of, of what I studied this week, but one of the things about meekness is that it really is about forgiving injuries. It's about bearing with the sins of other people. It's about how to, how to respond to God's providence when things don't go our way. It's really a spirit of acceptance of this is the way it is. I was thinking of the example of Mephibosheth, and I know you guys have been studying in, in, uh, in the Sunday school class going through 2 Samuel. I love the story of Mephibosheth. You remember the story of Mephibosheth? He's this, he was Saul's uh, grandchild, and he's Jonathan's son, and when the new king takes over, Mephibosheth has to flee because, you know, the kings, they kill all the people that would be rivals. And so he's, he's off hiding somewhere, yet David wants to show grace to him. And so he's going to eat at the king's table always, even though he's a cripple. But the part of the story that, that fascinates me is that um, when David has to flee, when Absalom tries to take over the throne and, and he flees, and, and Ziba, who's now... You know, he was the one, he's the manipulator. He's the conniver in the story. And he's the one who has to be, uh, David flips the scales with him because Ziba was running the farm that was, that was Saul's farm. And now uh, Mephibosheth is now put over, t- over top of it. And Ziba's going to be working and serving, and, and serving Mephibosheth. And so Ziba uh, brings all the supplies to David as he's fleeing. It's a golden opportunity, and, and yet he comes without Mephibosheth. And David even says, where's Mephibosheth? And so Ziba comes up with a nice lie and basically says, well, he finally was waiting for you know, Saul to take back over the throne, and you know, he, didn't, he didn't come because he's not loyal to you. And so when David returns to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 19, and he comes back to all these shady cast of characters. You know, he first runs into Shimei, and then he runs into Ziba. And then he gets to Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth is unclean, and he hasn't groomed himself because he's in mourning. And he's clearly identifying with the, the plot of what has happened to David. And, and David says to him, you know, what happened? Why didn't you come with me? And he says, basically, your servant lied. You know, he, he slandered. I'm lame. I went to go get a horse and get ready, and he left. I, I, I didn't make it. And so David says, I've divided the land between you. I've settled this matter. And so here Mephibosheth went from owning the farm to now he's dividing it with... And you know what Mephibosheth says? He says, let him have it all. He says, now that you're back, you're the king. You know, it's like a picture. Now that Christ has come, he's resurrected, let him have it. It's not a big deal to me. I have you. The king is back, and he's so happy. He, he has this meekness about himself that he can bear with injury from others. That's the idea of meekness. I'm sure some of you have heard this story before, but one time when I was greatly humbled, I was late for church. And I was taking my dog over to Rush Rushton's house because I was getting ready to go out of the country. And I think our family was going to South Carolina and I was going on this mission trip to England. And, and I'm late for church on Montgomery Village Avenue and I'm going pretty good. And the police officer's standing out there and he sees me and he does one of these, you know. 
pull over. And I was so upset. This was like 15 years ago. I jumped out of the car. You do not jump out of the car with the, po- with the popo, okay? So I got so frustrated that I jumped out of the car and he instantly yelled, get back in the car! And, you know, <clears throat> so, and I told him, I said, look, I'm a pastor. I'm late to church. I was giving him all of my merits. I'm a pastor. I'm late to church. I'm going on a mission trip. I'm going out of the country. I'm running behind. I'm just trying to get my dog to somebody. And he says, he says, well, how long are you going to be out of the country? And I thought, yes, a ray of hope has come down, you know. And I said, about two weeks. And he said, oh, he said, you'll be back in plenty of time to go to court. <laughs> and then he said to me, I've been out here for quite a while this morning, and you're one of the fastest to come through here. And his point was, I've been fishing for a while, and you're my big fish. There's no way I'm letting you get away. You know, you are my whale this morning, you know? And so when he left and went back to his car, it was like the Holy Spirit just told me, shut up. You're worthy of a ticket. Like, don't make excuses. Don't give any merits about something that you've done to, like, impress the guy. There's nothing impressive. You're worthy of a ticket. And I got a ticket. Well, isn't that what we need sometimes, is sometimes just to recognize, Lord, I am so full of excuses. I want to tell you all the excuses or reasons why. And yet we come to God and we say, we're just unworthy servants. Do we really want God to thank us? Or do we come down like the Samaritan and and fall on the ground and say, and give thanks that God has been so gracious? been reading a book this week by Tom Torrance, Thomas Torrance, and he was running the C.S. Lewis Institute for years. Some of you guys may be familiar with that name because that's in the area. And people have been telling him for years, you need to write a, a book about your story, your conversion. And so he finally did, and um, it's called Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Life, Redeemed by Love. And it's quite a story. And he talks about how he was in the midst of the civil rights era of the 1960s. And in his case, he thought he was really fighting for God and country. And he thought he was like a Christian and fighting for God and, and country, yet it meant embracing like a far-right extremism with hatred of blacks, hatred of Jews, hatred of communists, socialists, and liberals. And he began to identify himself with the white knights and the KKK. And he said, the road I was traveling led to increasing hatred for the enemies of America and the white race. He said they had to be stopped at all costs. The ends justified the means. And one night as an accomplice, he said, I attempted to to bomb the house of this Jewish businessman in Meridian, Mississippi. But the house was staked out by the police SWAT team. He had been ratted out by two of the guys that were in on the plot to bomb. And they ratted him out. And he got shot four times at close range. And the lady that was sitting next to him, who was the accomplice, she too was shot, and she was killed. And when he got to the hospital, he heard the doctor say, if this man lives 45 minutes, it'll be a miracle, because he'd been shot four times with a shotgun. And God had mercy on him and miraculously saved his, spared his life. And you'd think that would have led him to Christ? No. He was sentenced to 30 years in the Mississippi State penitentiary, one of the worst prisons in in America at the time. And so he 
took him six months to work out a plan and recruit with two other people, but he pulled off a, success, a successful escape. And two days later, he's hiding out, and the FBI comes in this wooded area, and one of the inmates took his, his watch 30 minutes early, and that very one who took his watch was killed, shot and killed, and it would have been him. He was taken back to prison, and this time he was put in solitary confinement, maximum security unit, and he said it was the lowest point of his life. And so he began to read, and he started reading all of this philosophers, and then he realized that's not satisfying. He said he had a hunger to read the Bible, and he started reading the New Testament, and he said he began to read, and it was like he had never read any of this, and he was reading it for the first time. Because he saw his sin, he said, for the first time. He said, I was overcome with deep sorrow for all the prejudice, hatred, violence, immorality, and much more, the evil of my entire life. I had been living for myself as far back as I could remember what pleased me, made me feel good, and make me look good. That was what guided me. And now I was reaping what I had sown. Specific sins came to mind one after another and person after person and event after event rose up against me. And how could I have done these things? And as I saw what I was really like, I wept and wept and wept, he says. You see, if you're poor in spirit, it's going to instantly trip the next domino and then you're going to mourn and then you're going to be meek and then you're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says he remembered John 3, 16 and 17, that God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He remembered those verses and he said he got on his knees in the concrete floor of the cell and he prayed a simple prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, I have ruined my life and the lives of others and committed many sins. Please forgive me. Take over my life and do whatever you want with me. He says, I had corrupted my soul over the years and made my life a terrible mess. My twisted beliefs were a mess. My damaged emotional life was a mess. My corrupted will was a mess. But I immediately began daily Bible reading and prayer. My appetite for scripture was voracious. I read for hours every day. He's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And now you see the pictures of him before, and now he's a completely different person. John Newton, the former slave trader who wrote the great hymn Amazing Grace, he once said this, I'm not what I ought to be, and I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but still I'm not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Is that your testimony this morning? Have you called out to Jesus Christ? Have you recognized how much grief, how much sin you brought into this world, how much evil, how much you've hurt other people? And have you turned to Jesus and gotten humble before him? If not, today's the day of salvation. Turn to him in simple faith and repentance. He loves to hear the cry of his people. Let's pray. Lord, we are undone. Woe is me was Isaiah's cry, and it's our cry this morning. In and of ourselves, Lord, we are sinful, and whenever we want to do good, evil's right there with us. The good we want to do, we don't do. And the evil we don't want to do, we end up doing. Forgive us, Lord, for our sins are many. 
Lord, we pray that this passage would go deep down into our hearts and that it would lead to righteousness, merciful to others, pure in heart, being peacemakers on this planet and be willing to even be persecuted, to stand up, to put a good word in for your kingdom and for the king. We thank you, Lord, that you came to this world because we could have never gone to heaven. We thank you that you took our hell for us on the cross. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.